It is a blessing to be in the house of God. The past four weeks, we've taken a, just a short detour from our study of the gospel according to Matthew to take a look at what it means to walk by the Spirit. Rick started us off with a, with a message from Galatians chapter 5. And we saw there that walking by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit, but it also includes obedience to the will of God. We saw in there the battle for the affections of the heart. Stephen then led us through 1 Peter chapter 3. The Spirit's work in the believer produces an otherworldly witness. It causes us to do the impossible, to be kind in the face of evil. Last week, Rick led us through Romans 7 and 8, and again, we saw the battle. We saw the need to know the enemy, and we saw the role of the Spirit. This morning, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 5. So, just as sort of a summary here, looking to the person and work of Christ to grow your affection for the Lord, submitting to the Spirit of God to control your walk. The title of our message this morning is A Careful Walk. But let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we do thank you for your deep, deep love, the deep, deep love of Jesus. But Lord, we sing that and we say that that's all we need. But Lord, we look at the affections of our heart and we see that there's so many other things that we desire. Help us, Lord, to be content with the deep, deep love of Jesus. Guide us now in your word, transform us, conform us to the image of Christ for your glory. In Christ's name we ask, amen. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians this morning from a, from a big picture, a lot of it real big picture, wanting to see what Paul is saying, what God is saying to us, and what we need to know. So we begin in verse 15, and our, our first point this morning is the motivation for a careful walk. Look with me at verse 15. It says, look carefully then how you walk. To walk is how we live life. It's how we conduct ourselves as we walk through life. It's a command. It's to be conscious and it's to be continual. But another word here, he says, then, walk then. Look carefully then. The New American Standard reads, therefore, be careful how you walk. This is the fifth time that Paul has used this phrasing, therefore walk. The other occurrences are in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of the gospel. In verse 17, he says, therefore don't walk as the Gentiles. That's not consistent with your union with Christ. Don't do that. In chapter 5, he begins by telling us to imitate God. And then in verse 2, he says, therefore, walk in love. That's how we imitate God. In chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, he says, therefore, walk as children of light. That's consistent with your new position. You've been delivered from the power of darkness. You've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son, translated into the kingdom of light, Therefore, walk as children of light. And then our passage this morning, therefore, walk carefully. So we ask, what is the therefore, therefore? 
Why does Paul use this phrase, therefore walk, five times in two chapters? Each of these passages refers back to Ephesians 1 through 3. In essence, therefore, because of the truth that we see in Ephesians 1 through 3, walk carefully, live life a certain way. This isn't a side point of the letter. Paul is reinforcing the importance of the truths in Ephesians 1 through 3. If we don't understand the truths of 1 through 3, if they don't impact our hearts, then the commands of 4 through 6 just become a do list. We become legalist or moralist attempting to obey them. We miss the point of the letter. So what do we learn about God, about Christ, about the believer in chapters 1 through 3? How should they impact our heart? In summary, we learn about the believer's union with Christ. This is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. This is critical. This is important. So what do we see in verse 3 of chapter 1? God blessed you in Christ. All of the blessings that we receive are as a result of our union with Christ. In verse 4, we see God chose you as a believer. In verse 5, he adopted you to himself. You're now a child of God. You're part of God's family. Verse 7, he redeemed you through his blood. What's he saying? He forgave your sin. He died in your place for your sin. Verse 11, he gave you an inheritance with the saints in heaven. Verse 13, he saved you and he sealed you with the Holy Spirit. No more glorious condition No more wonderful gift, none on heaven and earth than our union with Christ. It's helpful to see our former condition when we look at this. And we look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, what was our condition? You were dead in your sin. Verse 2, you were controlled by the prince of the power of the air. Verse 3, you were a child of wrath. Verse 12, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the people of God. You were without hope and you were without God. Helpless and hopeless. But in chapter 2, verse 4, we see some glorious words. God acted out of his loving kindness, out of his mercy, out of his compassion, out of his character, who he is. It says, but God made us alive in Christ. All of this by God's grace. These are the glorious truths that Paul references in each of the five therefore walk passages. This is the basis for why you are to walk carefully. This is the motivation. Paul doesn't give these commands so that you will be saved or so that you will become righteous. But he gives these commands because of who Christ is and what he has already done. Therefore, because you are a new creature in Christ, walk carefully. So we ask the question, what motivates your walk? What motivates my walk? What do you find yourself thinking about on a daily basis? If you're a believer, do the truths of Ephesians 1 through 3 influence your thought? Do they motivate your life? 
How do they motivate your love for Christ? So, that's the motivation for a careful walk. Next, let's take a look at the manner of a careful walk. Continuing in verse 15, Paul describes the careful walk in three contrasts. Typical Pauline fashion, not this, but this. He continues, not as wise, but as wise, not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom is the application of knowledge to your life. It's the approach to life arising out of a relationship with God. Paul continues with the two characteristics of a wise walk. He says in verse 17, Therefore, do not be foolish, but in contrast, understand what the will of the Lord is. A wise walk understands the will of God. But understanding the will of God requires a work of God. We see in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit of God can't understand the things of God. Why? Because they're spiritually understood. They're spiritually discerned. Understanding the will of God requires knowing the Word of God. But understanding is more than just knowing facts. Understanding it's an intelligent grasp of the facts that challenges both your thinking and your actions. If I tell you that the house is on fire, get out. And and you don't understand the implications and you don't act, you're probably going to burn to death. In our context, understanding the truths of Ephesians 1 through 3 impacts the way you're to conduct your life. You can't walk wisely if you don't understand the will of God. Paul goes on to provide a second characteristic of a wise walk. In verse 18, he says, don't get drunk with wine. Why? That's debauchery. Rather, but instead, be filled with the Spirit. So the second characteristic of a wise walk is being filled with the Spirit. You ask, what does that mean? Well, let's look at the context. Paul contrasts two verbs, get drunk, be filled. The verb tense indicates it's a command, but it indicates action that we take on ourselves or action that we allow to occur to us. The context indicates control of your life by something or someone else. If you're drunk, you're under the influence. You're under the control of alcohol. So the context we're seeing control here. If you're filled by the Spirit, you're controlled by the Spirit. But the filling of the Spirit is more than just the indwelling Spirit. It includes the Spirit's work in you and through you. This isn't a second filling. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.13, he states, you were sealed when what? When you heard the gospel and you believed in Christ. That's when you were sealed with the Spirit. That's when you obtained the Spirit. As one expositor stated, if you're a believer, you have all of the Spirit. When you were saved, you have all of the Spirit. But when you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit has all of you. I like that. So to be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit. 
This isn't something mystical. It's practical. It's a part of being wise. The Spirit of God acts consistent with the Word of God to accomplish the will of God. Let's take a look. What does it look like? What are the results of being filled by the Spirit? Simply stated, the result is worship. If we look at a broad definition of worship, it's defined as a response to divine truth about who God is and what He's done. Wisdom, I mean worship, is defined a response to divine truth about who God is and what He's done. Ephesians 1 through 3 contains divine truth about who God is and what He's done. And the five therefore walk passages are a response to, Ephesians 1 through 3, divine truth about who God is and what he's done. So what does this look like? Paul uses four participles to characterize what it looks like from being filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, addressing or speaking to one another. How? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's songs that show forth the glory and majesty of our God and King. It's singing, continues in verse 19. Singing and making melody to the Lord, how? With your heart. Worship originates from the heart, whether that's worship of God or worship of something else. It includes giving thanks always and for everything to God. Our worship is driven by gratitude and thankfulness for who God is and for what He's done. And finally, submitting. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our worship, our interaction with God impacts how we relate to each other. So in summary, the careful walk commanded by Scripture is a wise walk. It's motivated by love for God that understands The will of God is controlled by the Spirit of God, resulting in the worship of God. Let's look next at the practice of a careful walk. We'll go back in verse 21. And the idea of submitting, Paul says here, submitting to one another out of fear of Christ. Submitting to one another. But this doesn't mean we all submit to everyone in the same way. Submitting to one another in the context here indicates that each believer is to subordinate himself or herself to the one to whom he should be subordinate or she should be subordinate. And we're going to see that in our text here. We'll see in this verses 22 through 6-9, Paul provides instruction for six different roles and three primary relationships within the context of the family. Martin Luther refers to this section as the household code. Paul addresses here very clearly who he's speaking to, what they are to do, how they're to do it, and why they're to do it. Daily opportunities for you to live life in response to who Christ is and what he's done. Each of these roles shows us our need for a greater love for God and the work of the Spirit in our lives. Let's just take a look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands 
as to the Lord. So who's he referring to? Wives, not just any wives. He's re- remember, the letter was written to the church at Ephesus. These are wives that are in the church. These are believers. If you are here today and you are a wife and you are a believer, then this applies to you. So what are you to do? To submit to your own husband. First of all, let's take a look. This doesn't imply inferiority. The man and the woman are both created in the image and likeness of God. We see that in Genesis 1.27. The husband and wife are equal in essence and in worth. They just have different roles. So what does it mean to submit? It means to give up your rights. It means to give up your will. It means to put yourself under the authority of another. This is a command, not a suggestion. We see from the verb that it's willing, it's not forced. You do this to yourself. We see that it's continuous in the verb form. It's a continuous action. And we see this as a positive, not a negative. This is the will of God. And we see that it's not conditional. This isn't based on what your husband does or does not do. This isn't based on your feelings. It's not based on your emotions. It's just your role. But in our post-Christian culture, submission is viewed as subhuman, degrading, humiliating. But why? Well, just as the Jews couldn't understand how the Messiah could come and submit and suffer, our society today does not understand submission. So how are you to submit? It states, as to the Lord. Paul clarifies in Colossians 3.15, he says, as is fitting to the Lord. Your submission to your husband is an act of submission to the Lord, first and foremost. So why is the wife to submit? Let's look at the text, verse 23. He says, for or because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. Wives, you, you are to submit to your husband because he's your head. The point of this text is that the wife and the husband are one, and submission of the body to the head is natural. It's normal. That's what healthy bodies do. We see in 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen, we see order in relationships. It says, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of the woman. But there's a key part in this. In verse 24, it says, should submit in everything. Well, what does everything mean? Everything is everything, everything. Anything that would harm the wife or someone else is not included. Anything that is not moral or legal is not included. Everything remains everything consistent with the character of in will of God. So wives, what's, what's one area that you struggle to submit? Or phrased differently, what's that one area that you struggle desiring to be the head? Is your desire to serve God by submitting to your husband? Do you compliment your husband or do you compete with your husband? Ask God to reveal your heart.
Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Who's Paul speaking to here? He's speaking to husbands, members of the church, believers in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're a husband and you're a believer in Christ, this applies to you. So what are we to do? Six times Paul commands the husband to love his wife. We're a pretty dense group. But Paul, but, it, but he didn't say, but why? But, but what here? What does Paul mean to love? He answers best in, in answering the question of how we're to love. And how is that? Is Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? So what do we know about Christ's love for the church? Well, first of all, it was sacrificial. He tells us right here in verse 25, gave himself for her. It's sacrificial. In Mark 10, 45, we see that Jesus didn't come to be ministered to, not to be served, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. It was a sacrificial love. It was independent of the church's action, the church's response. In Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, independent of the church's actions. We see in John 15, 1, there is no greater love than a man lays down his life for his friends. It was best for the church. So how, what do we apply to the husband? Husbands, love your, your love for your wife is to be sacrificial and independent of her actions or her response. Your love is to be motivated by Christ's love for you. You're to act that love in the best interest of your wife. So in summary, husbands, love your wife in a way that shows forth the gospel. This is your role as head of your wife. So questions, husbands. What are situations you struggle to love like Christ? When your wife is not submissive, she doesn't act consistent with your desires, what does your response indicate? A sacrificial love like Christ or self-centeredness? Consider Christ's love for you when you're not acting like the bride of Christ. And why are we to do this, husbands? Why are we to love this way? In verse 28, he goes on to say, He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. It's the one-body aspect of the marital relationship is the basis for why you should love your wife. You don't think about loving your, your, yourself. I mean, it comes naturally. Your love for your wife should be just as natural. You continue to nourish and care for your body. And when you get sick, you're going to take extra care. You're going to be extra sensitive. If you're injured or sick, you're going to be extra careful to take care of it, to nurture it, to care for it. Do you provide extra care and sensitivity for your wife when your marriage is sick and broken? Paul reinforces the one flesh basis for the husband's love by citing Genesis 2.24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's that one flesh, one body. That's why we're to love our wives. 
Paul goes on in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery in this context is that Christ is a model for the husband. The church is a model for the wife. Therefore, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Paul concludes, verse 33, says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands, you represent Christ loving the church by you loving your wife. This is your role. Do you ever think if my wife would only fill in the blank? If my wife would only X, well, well, then I could love her. Then I know I would love her. Stop acting like Adam. Your wife is not your biggest problem. The command for the wife is to, to submit is not repeated. It's expanded. She's to reverence her husband's position as head. Wives, you represent the church submitting to Christ by submitting to and reverencing your husband. But do you ever think, if my husband would only fill in the blank, then I could submit. Then I would submit. Stop acting like Eve. Your husband is not your biggest problem. The marriage relationship should be motivated by a love for God and enabled by the Spirit. Husbands and wives, it's an opportunity for you to walk carefully, to understand the will of God, to be controlled by the Spirit. Let's turn to the next, the second relationship of, of children and parents. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to children. But how do we understand children? Well, first of all, these would have been children that are old enough to hear and to respond to the gospel to understand their sin and to place their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. But the word here, it shows dependency. So if you live in your parents' home and you're dependent on them for your sustenance, for your room, your board, and so forth, this applies to you. Recognizing parents and children, there's a transition because from the day our children are born, it's, it's a releasing and so particularly as our children get into their mid to late teens and early 20s, there's a transition that's taking place. But still, youth, young person, young adult, if you're in your house, obey your parents. What are we to do? Obey. What does that mean? It means to listen, to hear, to do what they say. Obedience is a stronger word than submission. And who are you to obey? Both parents. Don't play one against the other. Obey both parents. And how are you to obey? In the Lord. Your obedience to your parents is your obedience to the Lord. Submission to parents is submission to the Lord. Paul goes on. Why are you to do this? Why are children to obey? He tells us, this is right. He leaves it at that. This is right. In Colossians 3.20, Paul expands a little bit. He says, this is well pleasing to the Lord. Paul then grounds this in the Old Testament where he says, honor your father and your mother. Young person, teenager, young adult, do you obey your parents? Do you honor them? 
is your desire to please the Lord when your parents ask you to do something? What does your response communicate about your view of Christ? Do you view your parents as an impediment to your will and to your rights? Your parents aren't perfect, but there's no one else who loves and cares for you more than them aside from God. Obedience and honoring your parents is your opportunity to walk carefully, to understand the will of God, to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Fathers, Paul comes at us again. Who? Fathers, head of families, believers. If you're here today and you're a father and you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, you're a believer, this applies to you. What are you to do? And again, in typical Pauline fashion, not this, but this. Don't provoke your children to anger. Don't, bring, don't, don't anger them. Paul says in, in Colossians 3.21, lest they be discouraged. So we don't want to anger them. We don't want to discourage them. Fathers, we need to be careful. We need to be careful in how we interact with our children. Children, you also need to understand that how your parents interact with you doesn't cause you to sin. It brings out what's there. So, what are we to do? We're to bring them up rather than anger them or provoke them to anger. We're to bring them up, we're to grow them, we're to nourish them. And how is that? The discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's continually instructing them in the Word of God to grow their love for God, that they'll know God's love for them, that they'll walk wisely because of who Christ is and what He's done. This requires dads, moms, an understanding of our children. Every child is different. What works for one of your children isn't going to work for the other children. We saw that with our own. But let me say this, the best model that children can have is parents who are humble and obedient to the Lord. Parents who love God and are acting in response to God's love for them. Parents who are fulfilling their God-given roles and are controlled by the Spirit. Your child's going to disobey your instructions. And in doing so, your child is going to provide opportunities for you to see what's in your heart. That's why you need to be controlled by the Spirit. Fathers, do you find the cares of this world influencing your interaction with your children? Does your stress from other areas, other situations in life, your work, does that come out in harshness towards your children? Do you find your affection for respect and obedience revealing itself in condescending remarks or corrections that are not consistent with the level of their fault? Fathers, this is an opportunity for you to walk carefully, to understand the will of God, to be controlled by the Spirit, to show forth God's love for you. Next group or individual. This is bond servants. The term is the slaves. Who are these? These are believing slaves. They would have been a part of the family. Remember, this is, as Luther called it, the household code. It's the context of the family. But these are believers. These are members of the church. 
And what are they to do? You're to obey your masters. Listen to them and obey them. This is a role that you might say, this doesn't apply to us today. We don't have these household servants. We don't have slaves. But I say to you that the bond servants, the role of the bond servant applies to every one of us. It addresses the foundation of our lives. It addresses our hearts. It addresses our beliefs and our motives. These instructions are beneficial for each of us in our role. They should guide us, not just for bond servants or slaves in the days of the New Testament. And how were the bond servants to obey? First of all, fear and trembling. It's understanding the authority structure. But it's also with a sincere heart. It's with outward obedience that's driven by a sincere heart that desires first and foremost to obey Christ, to honor the Lord. It's not the attitude of the little kid who says, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. It's not according to eye service. It's not, well, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do as long as you're watching me. But as soon as you turn your back, I'm going to do something else. No. It's as slaves of Christ. The role of the believing slave is a subset of being a slave to Christ. And this applies to every single one of us. It goes on, it says, with goodwill, rendering service to God, not to people. This is the heart that looks past the situation with a sole desire to please the Lord. This is applicable for each one of us in those previous roles. Wives, look past the situation of your husband. Husband, looks past the situation with your wife. Children, parents, look past the situation. It's a heart set on the eternal, not the temporal. So what's your motive at work, at home, at school, guiding your children, doing life? This requires understanding God's love. It requires the Spirit's control. This is the otherworldly witness we heard of a few weeks ago from 1 Peter 3. We're doing things that are impossible in and of ourselves. So why are they to do this? Knowing that whatever each knowing that whatever good each person does, he's going to receive it back from the Lord, whether slave or free. The knowing relates back to obeying. The foundation of motivation here, of our motivation, is knowing, believing, trusting, and acting on the character of God. It applies to slave and free. Your relationship with Christ, my relationship with Christ, is the only relevant condition in this command. So, do you ever complain about your job, your marriage, your parents, your children, your life? What does that say about your view of God? And finally, responsibility of the masters. It says, says, who's he talking to? Masters. These are believers. These are in the church. And what are they to do? It says, do the same to them. What does that mean? The same as what? To show the same regard to God's will and to your servant's well-being and your relationship to them as they ought to have in their relationship to you. It's a focus on serving God in your interaction with them. And how are you to do this? 
It says, without threatening. Why is that? That's not consistent with your position and your union with Christ. It's not positioned with an understanding of the great, deep, deep love that Christ has extended to you. And why are you to do this? The slave and the master fulfill different roles, just like the husband and wife, the children and the parents. Your role as a master doesn't release you from living in a way that's worthy of the Lord. So it's an opportunity to walk in such a way that reflects an understanding of the will of God and control of the Spirit. So six different roles, three basic relationships in the context of the family. So a question for each of us, why do we struggle obeying these commands from God's Word? They're clear. They address specific people in specific roles, roles that you and I each fill. They state what to do. They state why to do it. They state how to do it. There are no exceptions. There are no conditions other than we are believers. These commands are part of a careful walk lived in response to who Christ is, what he's done, and your union with Christ. Your problem, my problem, is not a lack of knowledge, and it's not a lack of understanding. And the answer is not do more, try harder. Your and my struggle to obey these commands is not the main problem. These commands are important. They're God's will for you. But your struggle to obey them is simply the symptom of a greater problem. You say, so what's the problem? We need to understand that there's a battle raging. And we see we stopped in in verse 9 of chapter 6. In verse 10 of chapter 6, Paul tells us that there's a battle. He identifies the adversary. He instructs us in how to fight. The battle is not with your spouse. It's not with your children. It's not with your parents. It's not your servant, your master, your employee, your employer. The battle's spiritual. And you need to be aware so that you're not fighting the wrong battle, the wrong person, and the wrong way. The enemy wants you to think that the battle is the other person. And we typically take the bait, don't we? We believe the lie. And we fight the other person. You fight your spouse. You fight your parents, you fight your children, we fight other people. We're convinced that they are the problem. We're fighting the wrong battle. We're fighting against the wrong enemies, and we're fighting with the wrong weapons. They're not the problem. Regardless of how wrong or how sinful their actions may be, it's not the problem. Let's consider Christ on the cross. He understood the battle. He knew the real enemy. And there was temptation for him to avoid the pain and suffering that he was to feel, that he was to experience. But his suffering was the right weapon in the right battle against the right enemy. For Christ to fight his human persecutors would have been to fight the very ones he came to save. They appeared to be the real enemy, and they would have said that they were his enemy. They weren't the enemy. So why else do we struggle to obey these commands? We struggle because we don't realize there's another battlefront. 
It's not just a battle against the evil forces outside of us. It's a battle against something that you can't see, but it's right in front of you. It's a battle against something you can't hear, but it often audibly shouts in your face. It's a battle against something that desires to control you, to bind you, and to blind you. And you never realize it apart from the Word of God and the Spirit of God working in you. It's a battle seen throughout Scripture. And we see this in Ephesians 4, verse 22. He said, Paul tells us, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And it's corrupt through what? Through deceitful desires. James summarizes this well in James 4.1. We see, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's a battle for the affections of your heart. You struggle to submit, to love, to obey, because there are things that have captivated your heart. Things that you love more than God. These aren't just material things. Consider love, respect, comfort, freedom, autonomy, obedient children, understanding parents, independence, and the list goes on. When these good things, and these are good things, when these become expectations, when these become demands, these are, when these be things become things that you're willing to sin to either maintain or to obtain, they replace God on the throne of your heart. They become idols that you worship. We see this further with regards to the church at Ephesus, very subtly. Turn with me, if you would, Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus. They were a model church. Listen to, what, listen to what the Lord says. I know your works, your toil, your obedience, your patience, endurance, how you can't bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You've found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. What a model church. But look at the next verse, verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned your first love. What was the issue? They were a model church in their purity of doctrine and service, but they had abandoned their love for Christ. And you look at this and you say, How? Look at all they were doing. How in the world could that be anything but love? Model church. That shows us how deceitful our hearts are. Their focus shifted from their love for God to their love for their service to God. Christ wants our hearts and our hands. But what are we to do? Verse 5. Remember, therefore, therefore, because of this, remember from where you have fallen. Remember who Christ is and what he has done. 
Remember your resulting union with him. Remember the love that you had for God that motivated you when you first believed. Repent. Agree with God with the sin in your life, that your affection is for the wrong thing. Turn from it. Go in a different direction. And what does Paul say finally? He says, do the works you did at first. Return to your first love. Serve God motivated out of love for God, for who he is, what he's done, and your resulting union with Christ. How do we do that? I hesitate to give you another list, but at the same time, we need to, we need to put ourselves in the place where the Spirit of God works. And where is that? It's in the Word of God. It's in the people of God. We need to be in the Word. We need to read the Word to know what it says. We need to study the Word to know what it means. We need to memorize the Word to let it permeate our thoughts. We need to meditate on the Word to let the love of God captivate our hearts. We need to practice doing the Word to gain greater understanding of the meaning of what it's saying, to grow in our trust of God. We need to fellowship around the Word. We need to worship. But these are simply means of grace. These are opportunities for God to work in our heart. Doing these things does not equate to knowing God. Doing these things does not equate to loving God. We see that in Jesus' rebuke of the church at Ephesus. It is possible that the church at Ephesus began to love their good works more than the God who created them for good works. This is a warning for us. So what do we need to do? How should we respond? We need to cry out to the Lord because we need God to continuously work in our hearts to expose our sin and to help us to see his love for us that we would respond to him out of love. I'm going to close this morning a little bit different than we normally do. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And I'm going to ask you to read aloud from Psalm 139, a portion of it, that this would be your prayer to the Lord. Join me in praying aloud. If this is your prayer to the Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.